Well, good evening. It is again great to be with you all. This week we have sought to better understand God's church, Christ's church, His group, His people. And last night we began looking at the purposes God intended for His local assemblies, for His local churches. And as we begin, I wanted to give another reason why this all matters. Anytime that God designs something, anytime that God creates something, it is good. In Genesis chapter 1, over and over and over again, he creates something in the world and he ends with it is good or it was good or he saw that it was good. If I remember correctly, seven times in Genesis 1, he makes that point. And anyone who loves God and trusts God and believes God, I think would agree with this statement. Anytime you take God's created thing, you take God's design and you alter it with the best motivations, with the wisest people you can find. Anytime you take what God designed and you change it, your result is always inferior to what you had before. So when we talk about God's local assemblies and his intention and his purpose and his design, anytime that we waver away from those things are the result, no matter our intention, no matter our zeal, no matter our our devotion to those endeavors, will always be inferior than to what God intended. Because he is the God. He is the creator. He is the one who has all wisdom. He is the one who has all knowledge. He's the one who sees into the future and knows what will happen. So as we come back to this question of what did God want local assemblies to be involved in? What do you want local churches to be doing? Before we get to that, let's review real quick. I know there may be some people listening or people here Uh, Tonight that we're not here for the first lesson, so real quick, we'll do a refresher of what we talked about. Then the New Testament, the phrase, the Church of God or Church of Christ, is used in two senses. What we call the universal sense, which simply refers to the group of the saved. All those who have been saved in Christ. And in our chart, we represent that with individual circles being people and lines drawn from those people to Christ. But the New Testament also uses the phrase the church of God or church of Christ in the sense of a local congregation that will meet and do certain things together and do certain work together. And we represent it by the overlapping circles and the orange spaces on this chart. And we've looked at several different local churches in the past couple nights. And the reason that that matters so much is... When God created local assemblies, he didn't make them with purposes simply in their own right. What I mean by that is God's design for local assemblies directly relate to his intention and purposes for the universal church. This is similar to when an organization creates a department or creates a branch that is designated to deal with a specific issue. But if you don't know the overall mission of the organization, you're going to fail in your mission. You think about customer service. The customer service is supposed to be the people who deal with the problems that customers may face. But if customer service forgets what the job of the company is, they're going to really have a really hard time doing their job effectively. So as individual members of the one body of the saved, God wants us to be conduits for his praise. He wants us to be 
workers to do good works. He wants us to be companions to him. He wants us to be children and imitate the Father. He wants us to be priests to proclaim his excellencies. He wants us to be monuments in the world, his temple in a spiritual sense. And that's true of everyone who's in the one body. And there's an individual responsibility that each of us have to be, to fulfill, to be a part of that vision of God. And God's intention for local assemblies was to assist, guide, admonish us in those endeavors. Not to do those things for us. And that's one of the reasons why when we confuse those two purposes, we end up with chaos out there in the religious world. If we think the church collective, whether you think in a universal sense or in a local sense, is supposed to be the one who does good works on my behalf, or to be the evangelist on my behalf, then I will fail to fulfill those responsibilities and I will have a skewed view of God's design. No, the local church is designed to help me and equip me so I can go and be those things, but not to do my job for me. And so last night, as we considered Revelation 2 and 3, we kind of summarized the, these letters to the churches, the things he praises them for and he rebukes them for. We grouped them into two big, broad categories, one being admonishment, correction in practice, correction in teaching, or praise for doing the right thing or upholding the right thing, and service. And so the rest of yesterday's evening's lesson was really about fleshing out what does this admonishment look like. And tonight we're going to spend the whole of this lesson thinking about service. And sadly, not the whole picture of service. We're going to focus on one aspect of service that a local church renders, because I think it is the one aspect that is most confused in the religious world. So I will have a couple of verses that make the point that what we talk about tonight is not the entirety of service a local church is supposed to render But I do think it's the one that we need to focus on so that when we're trying to share God's plan, God's design with others, we are most equipped to do so in the area where I think there's the most confusion. So go with me over to, there's a verse we looked at last night, Um, go with me over to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, we're going to pick up in verse 43. Remember in Acts chapter 2, Peter and the other apostles have preached what we often call the first gospel sermon, uh, which is a little ironic considering Jesus preached the kingdom and preached the gospel. But this is the first sermon publicly that is spoken after Jesus' ascension and God has begun to reveal his full plan to uh, to mankind. And 3,000 souls are baptized. 3,000 souls are added to the body of the saved, the one universal church. And in verse 43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all of those who had believed were, to, were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Pause right there. Jump over to chapter 4, verse 32. 4, verse 32. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet. 
and they would be distributed to each as any had need. So here you have a picture of these new brethren, these new saints, part of God's one household. And there are needy brethren among them. One of the reasons there are needy brethren among them is that many of these Jews who came for the Passover and stayed for the Pentecost, they weren't from Jerusalem or from the surrounding region of Judea or even Galilee. They might have lived in Rome or they might have lived east uh, toward Babylon, or they might have lived in Egypt, and they travel for this important Jewish feast, part of the old law, and then they hear the gospel of Jesus. And so they stay because they want to know more about that gospel. They want to learn more about what it means to follow Jesus and who Jesus is and what his kingdom is like. Or maybe they stay because many Christians in the first century really thought Jesus was going to come back tomorrow or next week or next month or maybe next year. That's why Paul has to make the point he makes in 1 Thessalonians, that people think they've missed the return of Christ because they passed from this life before Jesus returned. And Paul has to say, no, Jesus um, will come back eventually, but those who die haven't missed it. And so if Jesus is coming back tomorrow, why bother go back home? Well, why bother make the journey um, back to where you were from if, if there's really no point in being there? Why not stay with your brethren? And what this results in is lots of people who don't have a place to stay or don't have a job and they don't know how to, they don't have a way to really get food while they're waiting for this return of Jesus and they're all excited about his kingdom. So what do the brethren do? They say, you know what? I have a house. It's not my house. I have land. Not my land. I have a cart. They didn't have cars. I have a cart. Not my cart. And they would sell things that need to be sold so they could bring that and give it to the apostles so they could distribute to meet the needs of the saints. I mean, you think about the description in verse 32 of chapter 4. They had one heart and one soul. It's like they were one body. It's not an accident. God uses that analogy. They were so close knit together that it wasn't their stuff. It was everyone else's stuff. But I want you to notice something interesting about this. Where was there not a needy person? Down in verse 34, for there was not a needy person among them. It doesn't say there's no needy person in the world. It doesn't say that all the poor of the world had suddenly fixed uh, the problem of the world had been fixed entirely. No, there was no needy person among them. To stress that point even further, consider chapter 3. In chapter 3, Peter and John are going to the temple to tell the gospel, to share the story of Jesus. And there is a beggar, who we learn in verse 2, is put at the gate beautiful every day. He's a paralytic. Been so from his mother's birth, from his mother's womb. And so we learned in chapter 2 that daily they're spending time in the temple. I presume the apostles have seen this guy. I mean, if you're going to the temple every day, it's kind of hard to miss a paralytic who's there every day as well. I realize the temple temple precinct is pretty big, but they probably have seen this paralytic before. But one of the times, passing toward the gate beautiful, in verse 4, Peter, along with John, tell him to look at them. And in verse 5, the guy looks, thinking he's going to get something. And in verse 6, Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene walk. Now just think about that for a second. 
What did we just read was happening in Acts chapter 2 and also in Acts chapter 4? People are selling tracts of land. People are selling houses, taking that money and giving it to the apostles to give to needy people. In the first century, it's pretty hard to find someone more needy than a paralytic. There's not a job he can do to provide income so he can pay for a place to stay or pay for food or pay for clothing. I mean, if there's a needy person in the first century, a paralytic qualifies. So when they're receiving apparently gobs of money, does Peter and John look at this guy? We don't have any money for you. And we could say, well, well, they didn't know he was going to be there except they go to the temple every single day. And this guy is at the temple every single day. I think find it pretty hard to believe they didn't know this paralytic was going to be there. Or other needy people would be there asking for help. So why do they tell him we don't have money? Because they didn't have money for him. Who or where did you not find needy people? Among the saints. And this lays out this pattern that we see in the rest of the New Testament that when brethren, when local congregations are gathering funds and pooling resources as a local group, giving it to whoever's in charge of the local group, be it the apostles here, be it elders, it's always used to help brethren and help saints. But if we think about this picture, how might we describe what we see here? There's a variety of words we could use, but we might use the word communalism. You have a community pooling their resources to help those in need amongst them. There's another word I could use that might be a little bit more scary for some of you. Um, the word communism. Now, I'm not a communist from a political standpoint, and one of the reasons is in the context, communism only works when everyone part of the system voluntarily is being a part of the system. And I think that's why it's often failed in history. When you try to force it on people who aren't willing to work hard and to sacrifice for the well-being of others, the system is bound to collapse. It only works when there is a voluntary choice to serve and to work and to labor for the well-being of others. And so it can work in this setting where that's exactly what's going on. In fact, that's stressed in chapter 5 where there's some Christians there in the church and they see this, this honor and praise they're receiving. So Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5 decide, you know what, we're going to sell some land but we're, and we're going to say we're going to give all the money, but we're not going to actually give all the money. But presumably they're going to give most of the money. And in verse 4, Jesus rebuking Ananias when he says, While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men but to God. His point is, it's not that you had to sell your land and give the money, or that you had to give all the money if you did sell your land. The issue in the story is you lied to God about it. I make this point just to stress that in this picture, this action was voluntary. It was a choice freely made by these Christians to sacrifice their possessions to take care of their brethren. And that's an attitude that I should have. That, that my house is in my house and my car is in my car and my stuff is in my stuff. 
If there are brethren in need, I should be willing to sacrifice for that need. Now, we haven't quite gotten to why we do that, and we'll do that in a second. But this is really hard in a society that's constantly telling you you need more stuff. And you don't need to let anyone take your stuff away from you. You don't need to let anyone um, be a burden on you. And that's not exactly, that's not at all how these Christians saw each other. It wasn't a burden for them to help each other. They said, it's not mine, it's ours. And so you have this sense of community and bond amongst these early Christians. Go to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. In verse 25, we'll look at verse 28, but in verse 25... Paul makes the point that we should stop lying because we're members of one another. And I highlight that just to make the point that he is thinking primarily of Christian-to-Christian relationships here, not just generally, although most of these applications would apply in the world at large, but he's primarily thinking about the relationship between Christians when he talks, about what he, when he talks in this paragraph. And so in verse 28, he says, He who steals will steal no longer, but rather he must labor, perform with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. So he contrasts. He says, you who steal, you need to stop stealing for one, but also need to work. That's kind of interesting. Because he does make a point about sharing, about giving. But what really is the opposite of stealing or taking away from someone? Not precisely work, although there is a relationship there, but the greater opposite really is giving. My, my girls are at the stage where they're learning to try to control their wills. When one of them has a toy, the other often wants it, and we're having to teach them it's not okay to take. It's okay to give, but it's not okay to take. And trying to help them understand the opposite nature of those actions. So why does Paul insert this concept of labor between stop stealing and give? Well, Because in certain ways, stealing and working are opposites. Because you think about what is the opposite of work or being late laborious or, or being diligent? It's laziness. Laziness is like thievery. Laziness steals from the person who has to pick up my slack because I'm not doing my job. Laziness steals from the person who has to help me when I could have helped myself. Laziness is like thievery in that way. And so he says, stop being lazy, be diligent, so you can help people who are in need. That one of the motivations we should have in our job is to get more than necessary so we can help those who we find who are in need. And again, the primary focus here is between brethren. Now, two reasons I pulled up Galatians 6 is one, I don't want us to think that the local service, the, the service of the local assembly is simply um, about money. That's simply an aspect. We're just focusing on that because I think that's the area in which there's most confusion in the religious world today. Um, and Galatians 6 makes the point that it is broader than that. I'd also reference this because I don't want us to think that the Bible teaches that we are only to serve those who are Christians. So Galatians chapter 6, pick up in verse 9. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. 
So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. That as a saint, and again, this instruction really is probably focused more so just to the individual Christian, but it would apply in our local assemblies, especially when you get to the last phrase of verse 10. But let us do good to all people. And that may look like a lot of things. It might involve financial resources, but it might involve other resources or other abilities or other talents as we seek to do good in the world and do good to others. But note what he says in verse 10, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. You are my family. And as family, I have a God-given responsibility to help take care of you. And I can't do that for every member of the universal body. Because I don't know every member of the universal body. And even if I did, I can't be around the world all at the same time. So where am I going to help the household of faith? It's going to be in my local assemblies. Where am I going to do good to all men, especially those who are a part of my spiritual family? It's going to be in my local assemblies primarily. God wants us to take care of each other. But why is that? Why does God want us to share, to work so we can share? What what is his motivation behind these instructions and these examples? Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we'll pick up in verse 9. Paul writes, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For ye yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and to attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Paul starts off this paragraph talking about love. And urging them to love and saying, I know you know how to love. You've shown that, but I'm challenging to excel still more. I feel like it's one of the hardest commands uh, you read in the New Testament. Where he says, you're doing great. Do even more. And you're like, man, Paul, I'm tired. But keep going, he says. And so this relates to his idea of learning how to love. Learning how to sacrifice for the well-being of someone else. And then he talked about a specific scenario where he says, I want you to make it your ambition, a driving force in your life to lead a quiet life, to work with your hands, to mind your own business, to behave properly. Why does he want this? So we can behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. The the lesson we should take away from this, the, the explanation Paul gives here is, the way we take care of ourselves and our family directly impacts the way the outside world sees us as a local assembly. And that perception of us directly impacts on God. It's similar to what he says in Colossians about making the most of the opportunity, seasoning your speech with grace. He says, if you don't behave properly toward the outsiders... 
you're going to misrepresent God. And so you need to work and, and labor so you can take care of the needs that you have so that you won't give God a, rep, a bad reputation. And jump over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. I won't read this whole text for sake of time, um, uh, but the whole text matters. Paul's talking about his time with the Thessalonians. But look at verse 6. It says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. Well, what is this unruly life he's talking about? What is this tradition? Well, he goes on to talk about how when he and Silas were with them, they made a point to not accept anyone's food without paying for it. And he says, not because we couldn't, not because we shouldn't have, but we were trying to be a model, trying to be an example to you. And the unruly life, the undisciplined life he's referring to, he, he gets very explicit in verse 10 where he says, For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone's not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear, for we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. Similar to what he said in a previous passage in the Galatians. He says, there are brethren amongst you. Again, remember, some of these brethren are probably living this way because they think Jesus is coming back tomorrow. What's the point of going out and getting a job and making money if we're just going to go to heaven tomorrow? I can understand that line of reasoning. But he says, that's not what God wants you to do. He wants you to take care of your own needs. And if there are brethren who are living unruly lives, you don't need to support that. Why? Because it makes people weary of doing good. It wears out people who are trying to serve. It, it takes resources away from those who actually might really need it, have no other access, and gives it to some people who could find resources themselves. And what this shows is that there... This idea of having a communal aspect and communal attitude with my brethren is more complicated than maybe we first seems, it seems to be in Acts 2. Because there are scenarios where God's people should be helping and there are apparently scenarios where God's people should not be helping. But the general attitude that we should have is if my brethren need help, I will help them. That's pretty clear in the New Testament. There are all these caveats about, but you need to do it wisely. But what's the point in this? Why would we do this? Because it reflects on God's nature. In John 13, um, John 13, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. A dirty task. And at the end of that, he's giving them some teaching. And in verse 34 and 35, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus said, one of the defining aspects of being my saint, of being my disciple, is that you love your brethren. The world will know you are my disciple because you love your brethren. And so when Paul warns the Thessalonians that you need to behave properly toward outsiders, 
In that case, working with your own hands to provide for your own needs. But one of the reasons that we need to be taking care of our brethren is because that directly reflects on the God who takes care of us. It is a picture. It is a a small picture of how God provides for his own. But it also directly impacts my brethren's ability to fulfill their purpose. I keep saying that God's one body of the saved is his gift to the world. It is the blessing in the world. Each of us as individual members of the body are to be a blessing in the world by being priests, by being monuments, by being workers. And the local group is God's gift to that one body. So that when I'm in need, I know someone has my back. And what it allows me to do is it allows me not to stop doing God's work in the ways that I may be strengthened or equipped to do God's work. For example, you think about Paul's scenario. Paul has to get sent to Corinth by himself because there is turmoil uh, in the city as before. And while he's there, um, uh, he's not getting to preach the gospel with as much time and energy as he was in other places. And we know that because it says when Timothy and Silas show up, he gave himself fully to the gospel. Not that he wasn't fully dedicated already, but he had to eat and he had to have a place to stay. And he had to pay for the financial issues that came up. But when Timothy and Silas show up, they're able to take that burden so he can do this. Now that's a a specific example. But why do we see brethren helping other brethren? Why do we see local assemblies sending funds to the church in Jerusalem? We'll look at some of those passages in a second. And so they don't have to stop fulfilling the purpose God has for each and every one of us. In other words, God is seeking to help sustain us and get us to a point of being self-sufficient in those financial needs. That the, the help that's given financially to brethren is... The goal is to get someone back on their feet so that then they can work and help others get back on their feet. There is one exception to this kind of temporary getting you back on your feet scenario, and that is the widows in 1 Timothy 5. And again, for sake of time, we won't read that whole text. But in that text in verse 9... Paul talks about putting them on a list or on the roll, depending on your translation. And I think it's pretty clear in the context. The way we should understand that is this is an agreement between a local assembly and a widow that they're going to take care of her for the rest of her life. That they're committing to provide her needs for the rest of her life. And this is why I think Paul is so strict in the qualifications here. Look in verse 4, before he gets to talking about putting her on that role, in verse 3 and 4, he's talking about those who are widows indeed. In verse 4, it says, But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. This taking care of parents, this taking care of those in need, is a form of piety, devotion to God. If I love God, I'm going to love God's people. If I love God's people, I'm going to take care of them. Why should local churches serve in this way? Because 
It represents our service to God and our love for God and his people. Now, again, this scenario is not talking about the individual, the children who should be taking care of their parents and grandparents. But they would translate to a local congregation taking care of those in need. In this case, particularly widows on a long-term basis. But there's also another important lesson as we think about what a local church should do and, and also what a local church is limited in doing. Jump down to verse 16 where he's ending this conversation. And he's given all kinds of qualifications for a widow to be put on this list. This is permanent taken care of by the local assembly. And he says in verse 16, if any woman who is a believer, and appreciate that in this day and age, there, are, there aren't very many jobs women could do, um, or at least were, were, were generally were uh, allowed to do uh, to provide an income. It says, but even if there was a woman, married or unmarried, not designated, meaning that it would apply in both scenarios, who is a believer and has dependent widows, she must assist them and the church must not be burdened so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. Think about that for a second. Paul limits the ability of a local congregation to assist widows. He puts a cap on it. She could be qualified in every sense, except there is a, a descendant who is female. Male would also be included, but that was already assumed in the previous statements he's made. He's clarifying that it also applies to females. She could be qualified in every sense, except she has a daughter or granddaughter or some female descendant who is a believer. That woman is responsible, and the church cannot take her on to the role. Again... There is this balance that the New Testament portrays that Christians have hearts to take care of others, especially their brethren. They want to sustain them when they are in need. They they want to get them back on their feet. They, They want to support them so they can continue serving God faithfully and be a light in the world. But there are limits to what a local congregation is supposed to do. If Paul limits the way a local group can help a widow, now again, I think this is a permanent commitment. He's not, I don't think he's saying that a congregation can't help a widow on occasion who may need help or help an older gentleman on occasion might need help. He's talking about a permanent situation. But if you put limits on it, why would we think there wasn't limits on other ways that church resources should be used or shouldn't be used? If this is limited, why would we think there weren't limits on other activities? If this is part of God's design and intention, why would we think that there's just free reign to use church resources however we want? One more set of passages. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 talks about the collection for the saints in Jerusalem. We're not told exactly what's going on. Um, I'll actually go to, have you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 9 really first. But it might be a famine. It might be persecution. But there is some trouble for the brethren in Jerusalem. And it's lasted a long time. I mean, the issue is going on in 1 Corinthians. It's still going on in 2 Corinthians. There, are, there is a group of men going around uh, and collecting funds. And each church is sending their own kind of ambassador to carry their funds to the elders of the church in Jerusalem. 2 Corinthians 9.1 explains, this is what he's talking about in chapters 8 and 9. For it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about 
about you to the Macedonians, namely that Achaia has been prepared since last year and your zeal stirred up most of them. But jump down to verse 12 and 13. This is where we, again, we, we're getting to what is this accomplishing? Why does God want local churches or allow God local churches to do this? In verse 12, for the, the, for the ministry of this service is not only fully, fully supplying the needs of the saints. God wants the needs of the saints to be met. And so he authorizes local assemblies to gather funds and pull resources to do that. You see it in Acts 2. You see it in Acts 4. Uh, it's happening in 1 Corinthians 16. It's happening here. But it's not only doing that, but it's also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. It's leading to God's glory and majesty. Verse 13. Because of the proof given by this ministry... They will, glorify, uh, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ. God is being praised and acknowledged and honored because these Christians are being obedient. Did you see how there's a connection to doing this and the obedience to the confession of the gospel? That if I claim to be a Christian, one of the ways I show that and I show my obedience is by taking care of my brethren. Verse 14, while they also by prayer on your behalf yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And there are other passages we could turn to and try to illustrate this, but for sake of time, um, we will end with those and come back to the question, why does this matter? Again, it matters because it plays into this understanding that the universal church, the one body of the saved is God's gift to the world, that we as individual members of the body are to be God's blessing in the world. And that the local assemblies were designed, created by God to train us, equip us, teach us, and guide us in how to do that, and how to do it wisely, and how to do it effectively. They were intended to be our gift. Think about this illustration. Let's say that you have a friend or a brother or sister in Christ, and they walk to, to work every day. They're working. They're, they're trying to take care of their needs. And you realize, you know what? It'd be a lot easier for them if they had a bike or maybe even a car. You buy them a car and you just give it to them. It's like, it's yours. I want you to use this get to work. And they're really appreciative. They thank you. Uh, and they're just so excited. And then you find out that, that they eventually get rid of that car, sell that car for money for some reason. Because maybe they want to buy a TV. I don't know. How do you kind of feel about that? Kind of disappointed, maybe? Like, I mean, I gave you that car to help you get to work, and I didn't intend you to sell it for the cash and buy something else. I mean, technically, it's yours. You could do that. But when God creates the church and gives it as a gift, he doesn't give us the authority to decide what to do with it in its entirety. So how do you think God feels when people look at his gift and they use it for something he didn't design it for? Probably even more so. Disappointed. Because it's intended to be his gift to his people and his people well-intentioned, not not appreciating really uh, what he designed it for, begin using it for things that he never intended. 
as part of Satan's subtle poison. He's so good at distracting us from the real job at hand, from the real task at hand, the real purpose at hand. And so God's purpose is not actually accomplished because we don't stick with his design, his pattern. It also helps us begin to understand how local churches serve. Now, again, we have focused on the use of financial resources, and I made the point. There are other ways local churches serve the brethren. But I want to spend the time on that tonight because I know that is the area where there's the most debate and biggest issue, in my opinion, amongst churches across denominations. Um, uh, And so if you're trying to talk to people to help them understand God's pattern, that's the area you're probably going to have to spend the most time in. And that's why I decided to spend our time that way this evening. And it, it helps us begin to understand why local churches serve. They serve to sustain the needs of the saints. So the saints can continue doing and fulfilling God's universal purpose in each of us. And that they do it so God will be glorified and recognized as the good Father in heaven who provides for his people. That they do it so God will be thanked and praised by those who are being gifted. They don't do it just because it's good. It is good. And I think that's one of the areas that so many denomination churches have gotten mixed up. But they think just because the work is good, it's exactly what God wants to do. And that's exactly what they should be doing. The work may be good. But when you look at the reasons given for these activities in the Bible, it's not just because it's good. God has even more reasons beyond that. And so if we just pick good works to do, they may be good, but we may not be accomplishing the ideas and plans God has because they don't do the extra stuff God envisioned. It helps us understand whom local churches serve. I don't think it's a surprise to anyone in this room when I say there is no passage in the New Testament where you're going to see a local assembly gathering financial resources and giving it to someone who's not a saint already. It's just not in there. Why? The local church is God's gift to his people, not to the world. That's not what he designed it for. So that's why you don't see them doing that kind of thing. It also leads us to this question. I actually meant to make this come up one at a time. Oh, well. But what kind of people don't want to be a part of a group like this? Two groups primarily. Selfish people. People who don't want to give up their things or their energy or their time. People who don't want to share what God has given them. Selfish people don't want to be told, you need to give to people who have needs. You need to look for brethren who could use your help in some way and try to figure out how to help them. You should be involved in their life enough to know when something's going on so that you can assist them. Selfish people don't want to do that. They want their stuff to be their stuff. They want their things to be their things. They don't want to serve and love. But also lazy people. Because as we pointed out, the local assembly, we see them helping saints who are in need. But they're also given a charge to not facilitate laziness. If someone's unwilling to work, then he shouldn't eat either. But that's a pretty bold statement Paul makes. So lazy people don't want to be told over and over and over again, you need to stop being lazy. You need to go out and get a job. You need to go out and and support yourself because that's what God wants you to do. It's 
not fun to hear that over and over again if you want to be lazy. Oh, you found a way for your needs to get taken care of and you don't have to do anything. God says, my people shouldn't be that way. Now, some people end up in situations that can't be helped. The widow who is 60 and, and needs someone to help take care of her because her children have abandoned her. Or the paralytic when they stop doing miracles and he, he can't work a job. He needs help. So I'm not saying there's never a situation where someone can't work. And that's why Paul thinks that's the way he does. Those who are unwilling. But we are not to be lazy people. We are to be industrious people, diligent people, to work so we can help others. That should be part of our motivation. But lazy people don't want to be part of a group where every, where every time they get together they're going to be asked, so you got, job, you got a job yet? And of course you may have those who maybe are just ignorant. Who just don't know. Again, these things happen not just inside these four walls. In fact, most of what we talked about today don't, doesn't happen inside the four walls other than the 1 Corinthians 16 passage where he talks about the collection of the saints on the first day of the week. But one of the things I want you to leave this series with is a realization that your role as a Christian, your role as a saint in the universal body, certainly, but even the local body, does not end when you leave this building. In fact, the vast majority of what you do as a Christian doesn't happen inside these four walls. This is just the place you come to get equipped to do that. In fact, I expect this series has, for many of you, not been what you thought it was going to be initially. I think many of you may have expected that we would have started talking about what we do when we do actually assemble, when we get together as a congregation. What should be happening, what shouldn't be happening. And that really will be tomorrow's lesson, our last lesson together. But again, none of this matters without Jesus. The purpose of the local assembly does not matter without the group of the saved. Because we could come every day of the week and we could study God's Bible uh, all we wanted. But if there was no access to salvation, the result would be the same. Condemnation and hell cast away from the presence of God. But that's not our reality because of Jesus. He washes the apostles' feet to give them this lesson of what it means to love so that they can understand when he says, love them as I have loved you. And, and he's about to go to the cross and be crucified and these going to be resurrected and exalted. But he says, the world will know you are my, you, you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How are we living up to Jesus' definition? If you're not yet a saint, if you're not let yet in the body of Christ, you don't even meet the initial qualifications to be a disciple of Christ. Stop holding back on that if you understand what that means. And if you do have questions or you do have hesitancies, talk to someone about it. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. But if you are in Christ, 
Does verse 34 and 35 of John 13 describe you? I know this group decently well. It's been several years I've actually been with you all on a regular basis. And I think it does describe many, many of those here. But I know everyone. So I can't vouch for everyone. So I ask you again, does verse 34 and 35 describe you? Do people know you follow Christ because of your love for your brethren? They should. And if we can help you do that or start that today, let us know as we stand and as we sing.